But we're going to spend uh, the majority of our time in this 113th Psalm. I'll give you just a moment to find a place there, and then we'll all start together. Now, if you look at the very beginning, the first four words of the psalm, Praise ye the Lord. Now look at the last four words of the psalm. Praise ye the Lord. Now you don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure out that this psalm is going to have something to do with the fact that the Lord ought to be praised. He begins, praise ye the Lord, and he ends, praise ye the Lord. Now, to be fair, uh, there are many psalms, or several psalms, I should say, that begin just like that. And we understand that so many of the psalms were written, and many put to music, so that the people of God could sing or give praise to God. And in this psalm, it's interesting to me that he begins in verse 1, Praise ye the Lord, praise, O ye servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Now watch this. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun and to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. So again, the strong, strong emphasis is upon the fact that the Lord ought to be praised. Of course, praise, uh, many understand and know the definition, but uh, just to make sure that we're real clear here, uh, the word praise has to do with uh, assenting to or pointing out or acknowledging the worthy characteristics of another. And it is so, isn't it, that when we talk about the Lord, he only has positive characteristics. And every characteristic or attribute or quality of God is worthy of our adoration and it is worthy of our praise. And so it means to shine a light on. And since the fact that the Lord shines above all else and all of his creation, then we are to give praise and honor and thanksgiving and all that's encompassed in the name, or rather in the word praise, we are to give to the Lord. Now, he emphasizes here in verse number 2, uh, Blessed be the name of the Lord, watch this, from this time forth and forevermore. And so we understand very clearly that there will never be a time in the future that the Lord is not worthy of praise. From this time forth, today, it doesn't matter what's going on in my life. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. It doesn't matter what's going on in our culture. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world. The Lord is worthy of uh, praise, and there will never be a time that is not so. From this time forth and forevermore. And there are people that sometimes might uh, raise the question, well, now, wait just a minute. Uh, what about if this happens or that happens? Well, this and that does happen. Who'd ever dreamed in January the 1st of 2020 that we would have the kind of experience that we've had uh, this year? Uh, nobody could have predicted that. Nobody could have been even thoughtful or mindful that such a, the year would take such a turn. But the things that have gone on that have been a nuisance and a hindrance in some ways and that we would just as soon be past, those things have nothing to do with whether the Lord is worthy of our praise. From this time forth, it doesn't matter what changes. Every once in a while, I run into people and they'll say, uh, Brother Sam, I got that job I uh, applied for, or I got the promotion, or I got a raise, or that bonus came, or something. And then they'll say something like this, 
the Lord is good. Praise the Lord, the Lord's good. And I, I, I don't mean to pour cold water on people, but I said, right. And if we were all broke today, the Lord is good. Because I do praise the Lord for the good things that happen, but uh, good things don't have to happen for Him to be worthy of our praise. The favorable things that we think, uh, the Lord has come through, and this is exactly what I wish, but uh, praise the Lord, that health uh, test result came back negative, and I'm not going to have surgery. Right. But if all of us are on the surgeon's table tomorrow, he is worthy of our praise. I mean, there's not an instance, there's not a case from this time forth and forevermore. And then he narrows it down in verse number 3, and he says, From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. And so what he is saying, on a daily basis, we should give praise to the Lord, rising of the sun to the going down of the same. I don't know how your day starts, uh, but I, I feel at times like my good friend that said, you know, I was having a great day, and then the alarm went off. And so that does mess up the day a little bit. But once you're up and you have to face the day, I don't know of a better way than to open this Bible and get your face in the book of God and let Him speak to your heart. You won't read long till you're reminded that the Lord is worthy of praise, that the Lord is great, and that He ought to be praised. And then... To the going down of the sun. What better way can you think to end another day that the Lord has given you than by praising His name? When I go to bed at night, usually I go to bed before my wife. She is not a morning person at all, and I'm pretty much a morning person. And so I usually go to bed. I lay in bed at night. This is what I do. Now, I wouldn't, when she's there and we go to bed at the same time, then I don't do this. I'm not going to put her through it. But when she's not there, I just sing a song. I lay in bed and I sing a song right out loud. I sing a song that has to do with the Lord, and I can adjust some songs that we sing to one another that you can adjust it and sing it to the Lord. That's the way I end the day. I'm not trying to sound spiritual. I'm just saying there's not a better way to start any day than by praising the Lord, and there's not a better way to end any day than by praising the Lord because no matter what's happened between the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, no matter what's happened, he is still worthy of our praise. No question about that. Now, mostly I'm among believers here. We may have some guests that may not um, know the Psalms and the fact that the Lord ought to be praised in such a way. I, I don't know. There could be somebody listening by live stream and other means that, does not know the forgiveness of sin, does not know a relationship with God, and may not be of the persuasion, not that they're against it, they just haven't been persuaded that the Lord ought to be praised like this. So there might be some that would ask the question, well, if he is worthy of that kind of praise, I mean, from this time forth and forevermore, rising of the sun to the going down of the same, if that is so, why is it so? In other words, what is it about the Lord that makes him worthy of such praise? Well, he begins to answer that in our passage. If you'd look down in verse number 4. Now, I want you to watch this very carefully. The first four words of that verse. The Lord is high. Now, I'm going to interrupt myself and, and just say this. That in these following three verses, the psalmist is calling attention to the high and lofty nature of God. Now, that's what he is calling attention to. In other words, we are to understand that God is high and lofty. I, I don't have the address of it, 
But there's one of the Psalms that stands out to me right now where God chides his people by saying in their unbelief that you thoughtest that I was altogether such as one of you. And so what, are that, what is that saying? Well, it's saying that people are thinking too low of God. And people need to have elevated thoughts of God. And so the psalmist is calling our attention to the fact that the Lord is high. That, that's who he is. He is the high and lofty one. I'll show you here in just a moment. But he is the high and lofty one. And that our thoughts of God should ever be elevated. I mean, if I'm a true preacher of the Word of God... Pastor Fong, the true preacher of the Word of God, the preaching that we do, whether we focus on it every time like we are right here, but the preaching that we do from this book should elevate people's thinking of God always, always. And you'll never reach a place to where you said, that's it, I can't think any higher of God. You're not going to reach that place because he is the eternal God and he is the high and lofty one and we could spend a whole lifetime or five lifetimes knowing more about God, knowing God more, and still we would not think of God as high as He actually is. See, and so the thoughts of God. The reason I think this is so important, I just watched it in my lifetime. I was born in 1945, so you do the math on it. Okay, I'm 75 years old. I don't want you thinking here working a math problem. And so I started out in the ministry in the year of 1967. That'd be 53 years ago. And what has amazed me over the past years, and it seems to escalate as time goes on, is the uh, lack of uh, the lack of acknowledgement of this high and lofty nature of God. In other words, the views of God have not gone upward in our culture in the past 50 years. They have gone this way. Now, there's no doubt about that. And the evidence is overwhelming. I said the evidence is overwhelming in public education. And I have to say that this low thinking of God is also being fostered by the kind of preaching that is done in many of the pulpits of the United States of America that are pretty much checking to see which way the wind's blowing and whatever way the cultural winds are blowing, then they adapt their preaching to the culture rather than trying to lift people up within the culture to the high and lofty thinking of God. See, because he is high. He's high. Somebody said, well, how high is he? Well, look in verse number four. He's above all nations. The Lord is high above all nations. Let's pause there for just a second. High above all nations? Are nations important? Well, I don't know how you could look at life and not think that nations are important. I don't know how we could look at Bible prophecy and not think that nations are important. They are. We certainly couldn't look back at history and things that nations are not important because they are. But he says that he is above all nations. Let's take some meeting, whether at the UN and New York City or someplace else in the world, Geneva, or wherever they might hold some of the great uh, uh, meetings of the heads of state and try to work on problems of the world and such as this. And when they all meet together, uh, if you watch the news coverage, I can remember the time that the news coverage would be like this. There'd be sort of a men whispering there, and there is prime minister so-and-so, and there's the president of, and there's the king of, and on and on, and all these high and lofty people, uh, significant people that are heads of state all right now uh, let me let me just say 
while they are significant and important, while Jesus taught, render unto God the things that are God, and unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, while we are taught that we are to pray for those in places of leadership, while we are taught that we are to respect the authority of human government, while all of that is so, let us be never, or let us never forget that God is high above all nations. As a matter of fact, sometime when you've got a chance, you're not going to go read it now. But in Isaiah chapter 40, you ought to read that sometime. Where the scripture says, God, uh, speaking through Isaiah, God says, now watch this. He says, the nations before God are as a drop of a bucket. Uh, being a farm boy and carrying buckets and milk buckets and water buckets and all kinds of things, I don't have time to go into all of that. But I'm just saying, I, I know what a drop looks like in a five-gallon bucket. Or a three-gallon milk bucket. When you milk a cow in a three-gallon bucket. I know what one drop of milk or one drop of water looks like in a bucket. It's not much. I know what it is to have a full bucket and one drop come out. It doesn't look very significant, does it? Well, it's not in relation to the whole. And God said, just to make things clear, you need to understand that the nations, here's how high and lofty it is, the nations before me are as a drop of a bucket. And then he goes on to say in verse 2 of chapter 40, they are as nothing. And then he goes on to say, less than nothing. Now, somebody says, my soul, how in the world could you say then that nations are important or that nations are significant? If they're as a drop in the bucket or if they're nothing or less than nothing before God, that means the nations really don't matter. But that's backward thinking. What we're supposed to understand is not the insignificance of the nations, but the infinite significance of God. That is as significant as the nations are. He is high and lofty above them, so high above them that there is a drop of a bucket and as nothing before the high and lofty God. See, that's what I'm saying. We need to elevate our thinking of God. Always, always. A.W. Tozer said, if you do not think right about God, you will not live right before God. Boy, that is exactly right. That if our thinking of God isn't according to the revelation that he has made of himself, then it's wrong thinking. Um, I travel a lot and do a lot of flying. And before all the headphones especially and the devices, it used to be easy to sit down and talk to people. It really almost, you almost have to be rude to get their attention and talk to them anymore. But I'm thinking back of how many conversations I've had where I'd have my Bible out on my lap and that kind of either scares people completely away to where they look out the window and don't want anything to do with you. Or they might say, oh, well, so are you a preacher or what? Oh, well, first, I'm a Christian. But yes, I happen to be a preacher. And I read the Bible and that's why. So conversation starts. How many times I've heard this? Well, you know, uh, Reverend, I don't like to be called that, but they say... Well, Reverend, you know, um, the way I've always thought about God, and then they start telling me how they've always thought about God. And it's usually pretty, so as not to say dumb, sad. Somebody say, well, that's rude of you. No, no, no. Stop and think it just a second. 
If we're not thinking of God according to how he's revealed himself, do you mean to tell me we're going to put these little finite minds of ours in action and come up with an accurate understanding of God? Well, there's not a chance. The only way that a man can know God is know the revelation that God has made of himself. And he is high and lofty. He's high above his creation. He's high above all the nations. And our thinking of God ought to be going that way. It ought to be elevated. It ought to be going higher and higher. Look at this. He said, the Lord is high above all nations. Watch this. And his glory above the heavens. Think about that one for a while. Think about outer space. Think about the technology that has allowed man to look into the space uh, farther than they ever have. And the more that they look into the outer space, the more they realize they don't know about the outer space. And God says, my glory is high above the heavens. It doesn't matter what man may learn or what technology comes along. It doesn't matter how vast they think that uh, the space is. It doesn't matter. God says, see, look into the heavens. My glory is high above the heavens. Amazing. Surely you've stood on a starry night. Maybe not lately with all the smoke, but at some time. You look through a starry, uh, out of the starry night and just gazed into the heavens in awe. In awe. It's his creation that made the psalmist write, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of God. And God said, know all you can know about the planets, about the universe, know all you can know about the galaxies, know all you can know. And he says, my glory is high above the heavens. We're talking about some high and lofty thinking, my friends. He's high above that. My friend Dave Hardy was preaching one time out of Isaiah 57, 15. And talking about the high and lofty nature of God and the holiness of God. Best sermon I've ever heard on the holiness of God. And he's talking about the high and lofty nature of God. And he's pointing out this fact that his glory is high above the heavens. And he looked at the audience and said, I can tell some of you are thinking right now. Well, Hardy, his name is Dave Hardy. Hardy, uh, how high is he? And he hesitated a minute. He looked back and said, well, how high can you think? And then he hesitated, gave him time to think about that, and then said, well, he's higher than that. Somebody ought to say amen right there. He is higher than that. I mean, there's a reason that he is called by many theologians and students of theology. There's a reason that he is often referred to as the incomprehensible God. In other words, in these finite minds, we'll never fully comprehend the greatness of God, the high and lofty nature of God. It's not even possible. And so he said, who is likened to the Lord our God? Verse number 5. Who is likened to the Lord our God that dwelleth on high? Well, nothing is like the Lord our God who dwelleth in high. No one is like the Lord our God who dwelleth on high. That's an easy question to answer. Who is likened to the Lord our God who dwelleth on high? Well, there's nothing and no one like him. He is God alone. Turn to Isaiah 57. If you would, please. Now, don't lose your place in the 113th Psalm. Verse number 15 of Isaiah 57. Listen to this. You can put this verse in any context. It'll stand on its own. 
Absolutely. Listen to this. For thus saith the high and lofty one. See that capital O on one? We're talking about who he revealed himself to be, Jehovah. The self-sufficient, self-existent one. That's him. For thus saith the high and lofty one, look at this, that inhabiteth eternity. God, Look at me a second, please. God not only is... There has never been a time in the past he wasn't. God not only was and is, there'll never be a time in the future he isn't. He said, I inhabit eternity. Somebody said, I don't even know how to comprehend that. Well, now you're getting somewhere. Who does know how to comprehend that? Here we are living in this finite world with these finite minds and these finite bodies, and we're going to understand, comprehend, put our brain around the infinite. God's revealed himself to be the one that inhabits eternity, all of eternity past, presently, and all eternity future. That's God. Verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabited eternity, whose name is holy, holy, holy. Somebody says holy means pure, undefiled. Well, of course that's the case. Of course it is. But it means more than that. Holy. You know what it really means? Other than. You know what we're supposed to be when we trust Jesus to be our Savior? He said, be ye holy for I am holy. You know what we're supposed to be? Other than what we were. Because we're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And we are to be, whereas we were people of the world and children of the devil and of sin, now we know Jesus Christ is our personal Savior. He said, be ye holy, other than we were. And God says, thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabited eternity, whose name is holy. Now look at this. I dwell in the high and holy place. So, can I have your attention here just a second? God says, I am high above my creation. You, you can't even imagine how high above. Uh, I inhabit eternity. That's beyond our ability to even comprehend. When you've taken the most brilliant and the most articulate person in the world to describe what it means that God inhabits eternity, it will be far short of what it really means. Because of our own limitations, our own ability to think. Look at me, friends. He's trying to elevate our thoughts to be commensurate with who he is. In other words, to the best of our ability, to the best of our ability to know God. We are to think higher and higher and higher of God. He said, I inhabit eternity. My name is holy. Watch this. I dwell in the high and holy place. What are you going to say about that, Brother Sam? I don't really know what to say about it. Except it's so. Well, no, I mean, our Father which art in heaven, but he's so high above the heavens. What I'm supposed to do is embrace what he reveals about himself. And what he revealed is I dwell in the high and holy place. High and lofty. Would you go back to Psalm 113 and look in verse 6? Now, we'll be back to Isaiah 57 in just a little bit. You can do this. Look down in, in verse number 5. 
Psalm 13, verse 5. Who is likened to the Lord our God who dwelleth on high? I dwell in the high and holy place, he said through Isaiah. He dwelleth on high who dwells in the high and holy place. Look at verse 6. Look at these words. Who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. You see what that said? God is high. Amen. God is holy. Amen. God is humble. What? Yeah. He said that he humbles himself to even behold what he has made. I have to tell you, that's the line that got my attention on this psalm and made me want to live in it. It's turned it into one of my favorite psalms of all time. That God is so high above his creation that he must humble himself to even behold what he made. Question. Anybody besides me has beheld what God made? And it lifted my heart to God and said, oh, thank you, Lord. A sunset? I remember driving down Interstate 35 between where I used to pastor in Oklahoma City many years ago. And my son, who's now 39, was about five years old. He's sitting in the car there, and we're going down to Oklahoma City to make a hospital call. And there's a place on I-35 where you can see across the plains in Oklahoma. You can just see forever. And we were going to Oklahoma City at such a time as the sun was going down and remains one of the most spectacular sunsets that I've ever seen that night. It was just astounding. You couldn't, I'm driving straight south looking straight west and, you know, going 70 miles an hour. That's not a good thing. And so my son said, Dad, could we just pull over here and pray and thank God for letting us see that? I said, no, we don't have time for that. No, I didn't say that. I said, of course we will. Of course we will. Pulled over to the side of the highway and beheld that sunset and just thanked God for the privilege to have eyesight, for the privilege to see such a beautiful thing that no artist could emulate. No artist could match the beauty of that sunset. Amazing. Utterly amazing. God said, that made you stop to praise me, son, but I'm so high above you, I have to humble myself to see it. Whoa. The foliage in New England, in the Berkshire Mountains, I've seen it three times. Just spectacular. God said, I must humble myself to see it. The trip my wife and I took for our 50th anniversary uh, four years ago, going up 101 from just north of San Francisco and then all the way up to Astoria, Oregon, and just go up there and behold that shoreline and the beauty of the ocean and the hills and the trees. It was just amazing. Oh, Lord, how many times did I say, praise the Lord? And my wife is Sandra. Sandra, look at that. Praise the Lord. Hey, I know. Yeah, she's agreeing. And just praise the Lord. And God reminds me that what makes you think toward me, I humble myself to even behold it. Now, my friend, that's high. I said that's high and lofty. And that's exactly how we're supposed to see God. But speaking of standing in awe, and I stand amazed 
Speaking of that, think about this one. If God must humble himself to even behold what he has made, what he has made, what kind of humility did it take then for God to become man and come here? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. If He humbles Himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and the earth, what kind of humility did it take for Him to come for this purpose Die for your sins. He did. Your Bible says that God was in Christ when Jesus came. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself and not willing to impute our trespasses unto us. But to, listen, take our trespasses and put them on the account of the cross of Jesus Christ. And one of the great verses in all the Bible, it ought to be as familiar to God's people as John 3.16 in my estimation. For he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to become sin. Not a sinner. He knew no sin. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. But when Jesus came here and went to that cross, he became the sin bearer. And was judged as though he alone was a sinner. I humble myself to behold the things that are in the heavens and the earth. And yet, listen to this. Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But made himself of no reputation. And took upon him the form of a servant. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Think about that. The next time God speaks to your heart and you know you should bow the knee and humble yourself before him and answer what he spoke to you about, but you don't want to do that in front of people, remember it's pride that keeps people from being humble. And it's pride that keeps people from humbling themselves. Just remember this. God, the Creator, not only humbles Himself to behold what is here, He humbled Himself and came here. For what reason? To be a good example? Oh, He was that. What reason? To do good? Well, He did that. But he said the reason he came was to pay for our sins. No wonder we sing, I stand amazed. I said, no wonder we sing, how great thou art. See, he's not only the high and lofty one, but our psalm says, 
that while he is high and lofty above our ability to even comprehend, he is so very, very personal. Because the same one who said, I dwell in the high and holy place, went on to say, and with him also, that is of a humble and contrite spirit to revive Listen to this. Amazing. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. This high and lofty God says, whoever will humble himself before me and accept what I paid for your sin and you'll humble yourself before me, I not only dwell in the high and holy place, I dwell with you. High and lofty, and yet so very, very personal. He takes the poor and pulls him out of the dust, our text says. He takes the needy and lifts him out of the dunghill so that he might set him among princes and make something of his life. Oh, yeah, that's God. That's God, high and lofty. You might ask yourself the question, like this passage forces us to, in my opinion. How's my thinking of God? Do I acknowledge I need Him every day? Do I humble myself to worship Him every day? Do I take a posture of worship? Or do I say, well, I just worship God as I drive my car down the road? I don't think so. I just worship God however I feel like it. You're not at liberty to do that. He's looking for True worship. So how's your thinking of God? And if we think of God according to what he's revealed himself, doesn't the higher we think, isn't it so, the lower we get? I'm asking a question. Isn't it so that the higher we then think of the God who revealed himself as the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, isn't it so that the higher we think of God, the lower we realize we are? then isn't it right to humble ourselves before him? Because he said, I'll revive the spirit of the humble and I'll revive the heart of the contrite ones, that is, those who will deal with their sin before God. Considering all of this, no wonder the psalm ends like this. Praise you, the Lord. What else is there to say? to be able to have this kind of a relationship with the high and lofty one. There's nothing left to say except praise ye the Lord.